Hello and welcome to The Forge. My name is James and this is the place where I teach verse by verse through the Bible. I am a retired U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant who went on to serve the Lord's Church as an assistant pastor, worship leader, and youth pastor. During my time in these roles, I finished seminary and I hold a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies and a Master of Divinity. I've been involved in ministry in some form for over 25 years, and it is my hope that this podcast will be a blessing to you as I teach from God's Word, the Bible. Forge exists to serve those whom the Holy Spirit is calling into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is done through biblical teaching so that individuals understand God's forgiveness, live in its reality, and overcome the wounds caused by bondage to sin. I will always hold to the truth found in scriptures, and a summary of my doctrinal statement is worded perfectly in the five solas of the Reformation. I believe Christians experience gratefulness and renewed purpose as they are encouraged by the words of life, which spring from the Bible. I pray that this podcast plays a role in God's ongoing work in your life. Don't forget to look in the show notes for links to the podcast website where you can leave a donation or leave a voice message with questions. I will be collecting questions for a future Q&A podcast. Also, please leave a review on whatever platform you are using. That and telling others about this podcast are the two biggest things you can do for me. Now grab your Bible and get ready for a verse-by-verse study. May God bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. Welcome back to The Forge, everyone. I thought I would start this episode off by touching on something that I failed to mention from our last study. If you notice back in Genesis 15, 13, God made a prediction concerning the future of Abram's offspring. He tells Abram that Abram's descendants will serve another nation for 400 years. And I really don't know why I failed to mention this simple part of the narrative. Um, I just forgot, I guess, but I will, however, offer some commentary here in an effort to be consistent with the goals of this podcast. So simply stated, this is God telling Abram that what will eventually become the nation of Israel will serve the nation of Egypt as slaves. And the careful Bible student will notice that in Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 through 41, we read that indeed Israel was a slave nation to Egypt for just a little over 400 years. Also notice that God states that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So there seems to be a connection between this time period that Israel is going to spend in bondage to Egypt and the iniquity of the Amorites. And we see here that God knew the Amorites were in sin against God, but that it would be another 400 years before he would bring judgment upon them. And of course, that judgment comes when Israel moves into the land. How did God bring judgment upon the Amorites? What land were the Amorites occupying? They were in the land that was promised by God to the nation of Israel. And God was going to bring the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And here we have more of a shadow of things to come, Egypt representing sin, Israel representing the chosen people of God, and God bringing them out of sin. 
And what do they do? They go in and conquer the Amorites. Today, there is no nation of the Amorites. Here we see God raising up kings and kingdoms to do his bidding, uses one nation to judge another, and he used the nation of Israel to execute his divine judgment upon the idolatrous nation of the Amorites. So today we're going to move along to chapter 17 and chapter 18 in the book of Genesis. I'm excited to share what God has for us here in this point of the narrative, but I did just want to wrap up those few little details that I left out on the previous episode. So let's begin reading at Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, the Word of God. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. And I also give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael his son, all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day. 
as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised, and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house, born in the house, bought with money from, from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Chapter 18, verse 1. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him, and when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced and aged, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child, since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked? Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than fifty righteous. Would you destroy all of the city? For lack of five. So he said, If I find there forty five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there should be forty found there. So he said, I will not 
do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. The word of God. Amen. As we examine chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, we should remember that at this point in our narrative, Abram is 99 years old. Earlier this past week, I had the opportunity to examine a photo that was 111 years old. It was of a town, and you could still see some of the buildings shown in that photo standing in that town today. There were no automobiles in the photo, and it dawned on me that as I looked at this photo that everyone in that picture is now dead. My point is that that simple photograph caused me to reflect on, on how long a hundred years can truly be. And as I stated, Abram was 99 years old at this point, and that is a very long time to be alive. And looking at that picture and preparing for this episode today, it just made me realize 99 years is a long time. That said, Abram has still not seen the fulfilled promise from God. So imagine he's 99 years old. Imagine looking at an old photograph. Imagine that God has made a promise to you. And 99 years have gone by and you have not seen that promise yet fulfilled. But we also see something here about God in this chapter, chapter 17. God reveals himself to Abram as, and this is a phrase that you may have heard, El Shaddai, El Shaddai, which we translate as God Almighty. And a great question to ask is, what is the significance of this modification to God's name, El Shaddai, or God Almighty. Well, I'm so glad you asked. God is here and in other places called God Almighty because this speaks of God's universal dominion. He is the king of all, everything. In fact, this phrase will show us uh, it'll show up again in the book of Genesis uh, when covenants of progeny are stressed. We also find this phrase in the book of Job, uh, which is fitting if you know the story of Job. And God tells Abram to walk before me and be blameless. We find God saying this phrase over and over again, as for me, and then later on, he states, as for you. So what's going on here? God is giving the terms of the covenant relationship. And what is in mind here is a service to God. When God says, walk before me and be blame, blameless. God's promises to Abram call for obedience. But how can this be? Because as we've talked about already, Abram's made some mistakes already. We talked about Sarai's idea to take Hagar as a second wife. And what we need to understand here is that God's command to Abram for obedience is not a 
condition which will make or break the covenant. Why? Because while these are commands from God, remember from our last study through this that God is the one responsible for keeping the covenant. And this is the one massive exception that we should take note of here. And that is God and Abram are not equal parties entering into a human contract. God grants the grace and the faith to Abram, but God also provides the remedy for Abram's disobedience. Remember, it was God who walked through the split animals of the covenant. We see God keeping the covenant even when a mere human cannot. God remains faithful even when we are not. As you consider God's covenant with Abram, remember God's sovereignty in giving the covenant in the first place. Consider that this entire narrative shows us our own inability to keep the commands of God. And during this visitation, God reminds Abram of God's promises, and then something remarkable happens. God changes Abram's name to Abraham. Now, remember, Abram means exalted father, but Abraham means father of a multitude or father of many. So moving on, we read verses 9 through 14, and God gives a sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. While this seems like a strange thing to do, there are some very interesting points to consider here. And here's another quote from Dr. Morris. All this was done on the same day God had spoken to him. This required a particular act of faith on Abraham's part, since it no doubt incapacitated the males in his community for several days, thus leaving his home and his possessions with no protection at all save God. One can imagine there may have been a great many questions from his household that day, and quite possibly some resistance. Nevertheless, finally, all submitted, and this in itself must have been a testimony to the effectiveness of Abraham's influence and the esteem in his own household. By this time, at least everyone knew that God was with Abraham, and if this was what God asked of them, they, along with Abraham, would obey. So imagine that you are a male servant in the house of Abraham, And Abraham comes along and says, got to have a family meeting. Everybody get here and let's all get together. And listen, I've been talking to God. God's been talking with me. And men, God has given us a covenant and the sign of the covenant will be circumcision. So we're going to, everyone, we need to uh, cut the foreskin of our flesh away. So you can imagine You're a male servant and you go, what? (laughs) You talk to God and God told you to do this? But yet, as Dr. Morris points out here, he had influence. He was the master of his home and everyone knew that God was with Abraham and they followed the command of the Lord. So also, also keep in mind Uh, that this was a direct command from God. This is something that is not negotiable. To some extent, there must have been some sanitary and health reasons for the procedure. Uh, There is even some medical evidence which would support that this practice is a contributing factor to the long-lasting vigor of the Jewish people. But this is not the reason God and Abraham, or God had Abraham, uh, do this. This procedure represents the cutting away of the flesh. It shows the protection of God over Abraham and his descendants. They will not be protected, nor will they be provided for by the flesh. There is a covering which is 
removed because they are God's people and he will ensure the line from Abraham will continue forever. God is the covering. The sign of the covenant was very personal. Obviously, the main people to ever see this sign would, of course, be the parents. The son would obviously see it, and the son's wife would see it. Parents were showing obedience and trust that God would provide. The son's wife would know that her husband was a descendant of Abraham, and the son would know that he was part of the chosen people and shared in the calling of Abraham. It is not a coincidence that this ritual concerns the male organ of procreation. In fact, there were pagan cultures which would circumcise young men when they entered puberty as a sign of moving from boyhood into manhood. But notice that it is God who takes the sign of the covenant to infants. God gave this sign for believing parents also. The parents were showing that their children were set apart from the non-believing world. But it is also important to remember here that God desires a circumcised heart and a circumcised ear. And you might be thinking, what? We've been talking about circumcision a lot. I'm kind of tired of talking about it. And now you're talking about circumcision of the heart and of the ear what are you talking about these things are not even related well if you'll read in deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16 here's what it says it says therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer here god is talking about when when you read this term stiff-necked it's a rebellious people who refused to yield to God. And what is he saying here? Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Further on in Deuteronomy, God promises to circumcise the heart of Israel's descendants to love the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul that they may live. And of course, there is a verse from Jeremiah which, which states, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. So I bring this up to show you that the act of circumcision did not in any way guarantee salvation. Okay, James, where are you going with all this? So glad you asked. You see, this is just one place where Reformed Christians who believe in water baptism of infants, get their doctrine. You see, we believe that water baptism and the Lord's Supper are signs of the new covenant. The new covenant. Just as Israelite male babies were to be circumcised as a sign of the old covenant, so too should we as Christians baptize our babies. Just as circumcision was no guarantee of salvation, so too water baptism does not guarantee salvation. What does baptizing an infant do? Well, it's a sign within the community of God, his church, his elected people, that these parents are believing God, that their sons and their daughters are to be set apart from the other communities of the world and daughters are now included because in Christ there's no longer male or female Jew or Gentile all may come read Galatians chapter 3 verses 26 through 29 and read Colossians 2 11 and 12 for some context on that of course later in the child's life our prayer as a community of believers is that through the doctrines of grace that God might be merciful and call this baby and save this child of believing parents. 
uh, R.C. Sproul, um, great influence on my life. Um, he wrote this concerning the baptism of infants, and I'm just going to read this to you. He says, baptizing the infant children of believers, sometimes called paedobaptism, in the belief that this accords with God's revealed will has been the historic practice of most churches. However, the worldwide Baptist community, which includes distinguished Reformed thinkers, disputes this practice. Baptists insist that membership in local congregations is only for those who have publicly professed a personal faith. The argument often includes the claim that Christ instituted baptism primarily as a public profession of faith and that this profession is part of the definition of baptism, with the result that infant baptism is not really baptism at all. On this ground, Baptist churches rebaptize persons baptized in infancy who have come to faith. From the Baptist standpoint, they have never been baptized. Historic Reformed theology contests the view that only adult believers' baptism is true baptism, and it rejects the exclusion of believers' children from the visible community of faith. These differences regarding the nature of the visible church form the background for all discussions of infant baptism. The practice of infant baptism is neither prescribed nor forbidden in the New Testament, nor is it explicitly illustrated, though some argue that the New Testament practice of household baptisms probably included infants and small children. Rather, the scriptural case for baptizing believers' infants rests on the parallel between Old Testament circumcision and New Testament baptism as signs and seals of the covenant of grace, and on the claim that the principle of family solidarity in the covenant community, the church as it is now called, was not affected by the transition from the old to the new form of God's covenant brought about by the coming of Christ. Infant children of believers have the status of covenant children and therefore should be baptized just as Jewish male infants had previously been circumcised. The Old Testament precedent requires it and there are no divine instructions explicitly revoking this principle. Further evidence that the principle of family solidarity continues in the New Testament period is found in 1 Corinthians 7.14, where Paul notes that even the children of but one Christian parent are relationally and covenantially holy. And that word holy is set apart to God together with the one Christian parent. So the principle of parent-child solidarity still stands, as Peter also indicated in his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2.39. And if infants are deemed members of the visible covenant community with their parent, it is fitting to give them the sign of the covenant status and of their place in the covenant community. In fact, it would be unfitting for the church to withhold it. This fitness is demonstrated in that when circumcision was the sign of covenant status and community inclusion, God commanded it to be done. In Genesis chapter 17, which is what we are reading now. So I'm going to continue on with just a few more quotes here from R.C. Sproul. He says, against these arguments, Baptists allege that first, circumcision was primarily a sign of Jewish ethnic identity. So the parallel between it and Christian baptism is mistaken. Second, that under the new covenant, the requirement of personal faith before baptism is absolute. And third, that practices not explicitly recognized and approved in Scripture must not be brought into the church life. Certainly, 
all adult church members must profess faith personally before the church. Communions that baptize infants provide for this in confirmation or the equivalent. The Christian nurture of Baptists and Pado-Baptist children will be similar. They will be dedicated to God in infancy, either by baptism or a rite of dedication. They will be brought up to live for the Lord and led to the point of publicly professing faith in confirmation or water baptism. After this, they will enjoy full communicate status. The ongoing debate is not about nurture, but about God's way of defining the church. It is sometimes said that infant baptism leads to false presumption that the right by itself guarantees the child's salvation. In the absence of biblical instruction on its meaning, this unfortunate misconception is possible. But it should be remembered that such a misunderstanding is equally possible in the case of an adult believer's baptism. And that ends my quotations from R.C. Sproul. So here we are in the book of Genesis, and I would imagine that you had never thought that a study in Genesis would lead to a discussion on paedobaptism. And we will move on uh, to verses 15 through 27. But I would like to just conclude this portion of the study with something R.C. Sproul brought out in that quote that I just read to you. If you were baptized as an infant in some form of Christian baptism, do not mistake this as a means of salvation. And likewise, if you were baptized as an adult, thinking that you were working your way towards salvation, that you've done a good deed now, you also have the wrong idea. And remember, as I pointed out earlier, God is looking for the condition of the heart. Where is your heart? Does God's new covenant mean anything to your heart? So now let's move on to verses 15 through 27. We find yet another name change. God now changes Sarai's name to Sarah. And Sarah means princess. But this is not a huge change from Sarai, to be honest. It's a variant of the name which has the same meaning. So why the change? Well, the name Sarai points to her birth. It is looking backward in time. But this slight change in pronunciation to Sarah looks forward in time to the promise of God. It is fitting for her name to be princess, since nations and kings will come from her. And twice God said he would bless Sarah. God's promises to Sarah become true. There are three nations in the Bible which can be traced back to Abraham and Sarah, Judah, Israel, and Edom. God blesses Ishmael too, but he reminds Abraham that the covenant is with Abraham, Sarah, and their son, Isaac. And of course, Isaac means laughter. I want you to notice here that Abraham was filled with joy and he laughed at God's promise of a son. But it was a laughter of joy, not scorn or unbelief or sarcasm as Sarah will do later. In chapter 18, we see that Abraham bowed himself toward the ground. And this phrase in English comes from a Hebrew word, Shaka, which means worship. And this is the first place in the Bible where this word is used. And we see that he calls the spokesman of these three visitors, my Lord. And as we've mentioned before, the word here is Adonai. So here's what's important about all of this. Abraham recognizes the Lord, and he recognizes himself as a servant of the Lord. 
Here we have another theophany, an appearance of God in the flesh in the Old Testament. And I'm reminded here at this point of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, where it says, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Abraham took care to make sure the bread was being made, and he was in a hurry to get a calf and have it cooked up. He was showing genuine hospitality. But also, he was showing service to them. He became like the head waiter. And this is the practice of Near Eastern customs of hospitality, even today, having Myself been in various areas of the Middle East, I can tell you that this is the practice today. If you are someone's guest in an Arab country, you are treated, as they say, like royalty. You are their guest, and it is dishonorable in their culture to not treat you that way. You get the best that they have to offer. It's quite a different thing if you show up and you are not an invited guest. (laughs) But keep this behavior in mind as we see the behavior of the wicked Sodomites later on in the story. Now imagine as Abraham waits, almost as if he's waiting tables. They've washed their feet. They've had the bread and the butter prepared. And now the meat is prepared and they are relaxing and eating and being refreshed, but Abraham is waiting for something. You know he had to be wondering, are they bringing me the good news of a promised son? So look at verses 9 through 15. We see that the Lord himself promises that now is the time. Now is the time, and Sarah would become pregnant. And there's this phrase, Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. You know, this could be translated another way. Sarah no longer experienced the cycle of women. And God would have to regenerate her reproductive system. She was 90 years old after all. And take note of Sarah's laugh here. She laughs, but hers was not a laugh of joy at the promise of God, but it was a cynical laugh. And Like so many of us, when we are caught doing something that we should not be doing, what do we do? We deny it. And Sarah denies it. She lies. She says, I didn't laugh. But look, the Lord knew her heart. And please make note of verse 14. It's a great verse in the Bible. It says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So moving on to verses 16 through 22, this shows us that the Lord stays behind, but the angels head toward Sodom and Gomorrah. These cities had heard the testimony of the one true and living God from Melchizedek. No doubt they had heard it from Lot, and they had personally seen the salvation of the Lord through the rescue. Remember that Abraham performed when the kings of the east came in, yet they were increasingly wicked in the sight of God. Having enjoyed his blessings and his deliverance from their enemies, they rejected God's truth. Does this sound like a nation that you might know of today? Or nations, plural? Those who have enjoyed the blessings and the deliverance of God, yet they deny and reject him and his truth? And someone may ask, well, listen, if God knows all things and he's everywhere all the time, like you Christians claim that he is, then why did he go down to Sodom? What's the whole idea of going down to Sodom? Well, we must remember that God has promised at this point that Abraham would be the father of a great nation, and this nation would bless the entire earth. Even the Gentiles are going to be blessed because of Abraham. And such a great nation would have to know and they would have to practice justice. They're going to have to learn justice, how to be a judge, how to execute justice. 
And this lesson in justice, it must begin with Abraham. Why? Because he is the beginning of the nation. So Abraham would see and he would learn of the justice of God, and he would learn it firsthand. And this is something that many Christians do not like to emphasize when we talk about our saving and our covenant-keeping God. Sure, we want to talk about grace, and we want to talk about love and mercy. And we should talk about these things because our God is a God of all those things. However, keep this in mind. His character is holy. And if we're going to remain consistent in our view of him, we must also recognize his justice. He is a just God, and he is perfect in his justice. Friends, anything less than this is not God. You need to understand that. If you don't like this part of God, if you don't like this part of his attributes, his, his holy character, then you are creating a God in your image. You need to take the whole picture. Yes, there is mercy. Yes, there is love. There is grace. But there is also justice. There is also wrath. Just as these two ancient cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, had the testimony of what was true and what was righteous, so has America. We've had the good news proclaimed throughout this nation, and unfortunately, on the whole, we have rejected it. And the current moral collapse of our country is the expected result of a people that have rejected God. His word has been rejected. His only son has been rejected. And just as Abraham stays in the presence of the Lord to make intercession, so must we as Christians continue to pray for our nation and pray for those we love. Pray for your president. Pray for those in leadership. Pray for the House and the Senate. And then pray also for your local government, your state government, your county government. God is the one who is sovereign. God is the one who can change someone's heart. And we are commanded to pray for those in authority. I didn't say you had to agree with them, but you need to pray for them. Pray that God would be merciful. Pray that God would grant wisdom. Pray that God might take out the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And pray that God would reveal those things done in secret. Pray for mercy and grace. Notice that God states of Abraham, He says, I have known him. Now that's what it says in the New King James and in the Old King James. There's a Hebrew word there that is translated as known or know. I know him or I have known him. But in the New American Standard Bible and in the English Standard Version, that same word in Hebrew is translated chosen. I have chosen him. I, God saying, I have chosen Abraham. The idea conveyed here in the Hebrew word is that God chose Abraham in love. God knows and has chosen Abraham in love. So we see God's great love for his elected people, those whom he has known. And the purpose of his election is that God will have a people who will walk before him in holiness and in righteousness. Remember, he said to Abram, walk before me and be blameless. But not only here, but in other places throughout the stories of the prophets, you see that God so loved his prophets that he does not hide from them what he intends to do. And it's the same here with Abraham. Though Abraham is often not thought of in this way, he was a prophet. Also, like other prophets, Abraham intercedes for the people. And Abraham intercedes not only for Lot and his family, 
but for the occupants of the cities. No doubt, Abraham knew some of them and had even rescued them years earlier. And we watch as the numbers go down and down and down as Abraham continues to plead the case before God. Notice that God is so merciful that he states he will not destroy the cities even if only ten are found to serve him. And this tells us many things about God. First, it tells us that he is merciful. Uh, Second, we see that he responds to our prayers. Abraham is communicating with God at this point. He is in a certain way like I said, pleading his case before God. And notice that God listens, and he reasons with Abraham. There's a lesson to be learned here about justice. Even though God is listening, even though God is merciful, and he is reasoning with Abraham, remember, God will not grant the requests of Abraham if those requests violate God's holiness and his justice. And third, notice that a tiny minority of people could do something really great. Even a small number of people that are obedient to God, that's enough for God to use. That is enough for God to save the entire city. God would save that whole city for the sake of ten. Fourth, we see that we can learn something from Abraham's prayer. While he is being persistent in his prayer, he's not being presumptuous. So we can be persistent without presumption. What do I mean by that? Well, he is reverent. And we should model our prayers and our requests after Abraham. Of course, we do have the model of the Lord's Prayer, but notice here how reverent Abraham is. He is appealing to God's righteous character. He's appealing to his loving kindness, but he's also pairing that with a very reverent, respectful, specific request. And this is the model that we should use. We've all heard people say things referring to God as the man upstairs or my friend or I know somebody in high places. Friends, be careful. Be careful. What am I saying? I'm saying be reverent when you talk to God. Be reverent when you refer to him. And what does Jesus tell us in the Lord's prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Your name is holy. So we approach him with reverence. And the final and fifth thing to notice here is in this exchange between Abraham and God, it's that when all was said and done, Abraham left it in God's hands. Abraham knows or knew that the Lord is and was the God and the judge of the universe. And Abraham knows that God will do what is right. There are those homosexual activists and others sympathetic to their cause who point to God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they claim that the charge here against Sodom and Gomorrah is their lack of hospitality. Remember, I explained that tradition of hospitality. And they will point to it and they will say, Sodom and Gomorrah were not like Abraham, who was hospitable. It has nothing to do with their sexual deviancy. It has everything to do with their hospitality. And we'll get more into this in the next chapter, but I want you to notice that while the Sodomites certainly were not hospitable people, God was already in the process of weighing the evidence here. And this is before the other two, which were with the Lord, ever made it to the cities. 
So there is a sin already being considered in the court of God, which has nothing to do with hospitality or a lack of hospitality. And we find here that Lot is in the gates of Sodom. And remember, we talked about this before, Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. And this is where he was looking to go. Next thing we find is he is dwelling in Sodom. After all, living in the city does have its advantages. I was just discussing this with a friend of mine recently. The differences between country living out in a place that is somewhat isolated versus living in the city, where if you want something, you can go down to the convenience store and pick it up. Well, if you're out in the country and you live 35 or 40 miles from town, there is no convenience store. If you need something, you need to go get it in town. So you better make sure your shopping list is complete. Point is, there are advantages to living in the city after all. So Lot moves into the city. And now we see Lot sitting in the gate. And as I've mentioned before, this is where business, uh, commercial success, uh, judicial matters. This is where they're all settled in the city gate. And it's the elders of the city who preside there. You could say that the city gate was politics as usual, even back then. And Lot knows Abraham is called of God. And as we saw before, Abraham adopted Lot. In fact, we see Lot move from nephew to son to actually being called Abraham's brother. He's kind of all three of these in Scripture. But the point here is is that Lot knows better. He knows Abraham, and he knows Abraham's God, but it seems to be totally okay with him, seems to be totally fine with him, that there's wickedness all around him. It surrounds him. He's in the city gate. And I'm sure Lot is what we might call tolerant in today's wicked world. There is no indication from the Bible that Lot tried to witness to the people of God. In fact, he may have even been proud of himself for doing so well in a land of the wicked. What does this sound like to you? Every country in the world has freedom of religion, my friend. Every country has freedom of religion as long as you keep your mouth shut. Keep your religious opinions to yourself. We have no place for that here. So what does that sound like to you? As I bring this episode to a close, I want you to consider this. Lot is a picture of today's carnal Christian, as I've heard it called, a carnal Christian in America, full of pride, soothing his conscience, thinking he's okay because he said a salvation prayer one time and Occasionally he goes to church. Maybe he goes to church every Sunday and he thinks he's okay. Maybe this person thinks that he's saved because he was baptized as a baby. But many of today's Western so-called Christians do not in any way act differently than those in the wicked world in which they live. What is missing in so many so-called Christian lives is a biblical worldview. Dear Christian, in what way are you any different than the world around you? In what way has there been any true repentance in your life from sin? If the events of this so-called COVID pandemic have shown us anything, they have shown us that many of our pastors are cowards. That's right. I said it. Indeed, we have seen a miserable failure of religious activity in the face of the COVID restrictions and the social distancing. And I want you to notice the words that I'm using here. I'm careful not to say that the Lord's church has failed. Why? Because I don't believe the true church has failed. I don't believe God's church has failed. The ones who are truly saved, they never stopped meeting. We never stopped participating at the Lord's table and the Lord's supper. 
the true preachers and pastors and elders did not stop bringing God's people to the waters of baptism. We never stopped. The preachers in England and in Canada who have now served time in jail, they never stopped preaching the truth. So the Lord's church did not fail, my friends. However, religious institutions pretending to be a part of the body of Christ, they showed their true colors through all of this. And I'm going to ask you, dear Christian, which side are you on? And what kind of a church do you attend? Get one thing clear in your thinking, dear Christian. This is not about politics. This is about obedience to the one true and living God. This is about a covenant-keeping God. And our culture today has seemingly embraced perversity at any and all levels. Last week, I received an email coupon from one of my favorite fast food restaurants. And this chain of stores has evidently gone fully woke. If you don't know what woke is, go look it up. Fully woke. They have named their food items after drag queens. And I didn't know this, but apparently there are drag queens who evidently enjoy some kind of celebrity. Since I know almost nothing about pop culture, I was not aware of such things. But I'll tell you what I did. I bowed my head and I said out loud, God, help us. The entire month of June is set aside as Pride Month and a celebration of all things sexually perverse. And friends, calling June Pride Month is very appropriate. It is very appropriate. Why? Because it's our pride that tells us that we can thumb our nose at God. It's our pride that rejects his compliment for us and desires sexual activity with a mirror image of self. Do you understand that? Homosexuality is the height of self-worship. And as a culture, we seem to think that God will not destroy us as he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We need to remember that God does not change in his holy character. His holy attributes do not change. God's truth is not subject to a vote. Indeed, God's truth is the only truth there is. So I'll leave you with this. Take a lesson from the book of Genesis. God is not mocked. While he is faithful to his own, he is just. While he is merciful, he does not hold the guilty blameless. While he loves his children, he hates sin. And the Bible tells us in Psalm chapter 7 that God is a just judge and he is angry with the wicked every day. Perhaps you've heard that God loves the sinner and he hates the sin. Listen to me, friends. This is not in the Bible anywhere. Show me that in the scriptures. You will not find it. Now, God certainly does love sinners. He loves me and he saved me and I'm a sinner. But let me ask you a question. If God only hates the sin, then why is it that the unrepentant sinner goes to hell? Make no mistake, the unrepentant sinner has the wrath of God abiding on them. And the difference is that some sinners repent and come to Christ. The wicked do not. Why did Christ go to the cross? If you want to see what God thinks of sin, look upon the cross of Christ. There, he who knew no sin became sin for us. That is the wrath of God coming down on the one who rejects Christ. You want to see what it looks like? 
look at the cross. So as I have stated before, your only hope to avoid the righteous and just wrath of the living God and the judge of all is to come to Christ now. Call upon him now. Surrender your life to him now. Come to Christ and be made clean. With that, I will close out this episode. Genesis chapter 19 is next. I'll talk to you. for listening to the forge podcast and don't forget to leave a review with comments let me hear from you leave a voice message through the link i hope and pray that you find ways to apply the truths of god's word in daily living remember dear christian you are forgiven it is by grace that you've been saved through faith may you grow in christ in the study of the bible and truly overcome wounds that were caused by sinful choices and actions of the past. I also pray that you are always reforming, seeking to glorify God in all that you say and do. Remember to be grateful to God for what he is working out, not only in you, but in all his creation as well. And lastly, be encouraged. Encouraged to serve God and others as you grow in him. 